This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. From WMPG, this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and today we continue our series on PTSD among women who have served in the military. So far in this series, we've been focused mostly on women and military sexual trauma, or MST. We've heard from soldiers and clinicians about the far-reaching impact of being assaulted by someone you trust when you're far from home or with no one safe to get help from. Today, we'll be focusing more on women's health care within the Department of Veterans Affairs as a whole, not just mental health care, but the physical care needs of women who are making up more and more of returning veterans. Both of the veterans we've talked to so far who were raped overseas did not get appropriate medical care after the assault. How much are women's health needs being provided for in the VA, and how much do things still need to change? I'll be talking today to LaRonda Harris, who is the Women Veterans Program Manager at the VA in Maine. She first started as a critical care nurse and has held several different nursing positions throughout her career at the VA until she was hired to advocate for women's health services within the VA in Maine. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, LaRonda. Thank you, Anne, for having me. I understand that you are yourself a veteran. How old were you when you enlisted? What branch of the service were you in, and what did you do? Well, I'm probably one of the unique veterans out there. I actually um, was raised military. My dad was retired uh, military, 24 years active duty. So when I got here to Maine and I graduated from high school, I decided to go to college first. And after that is when I got my commission in the Air Force. So um, I actually went on active duty in 1986, and I served until 1989 as an Air Force nurse stationed at Scott Air Force Base. So I was older. I was about 22, 23 when I went in. It's always amusing when older means 22. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an Air Force nurse. So I grew up watching MASH, mm-hmm. which is like my favorite TV show. Mm-hmm. So I picture Air Force nurses as, you know, like in really dangerous places, treating a lot of desperate casualties. What kind of things did you do as an Air Force nurse? Well, actually, it really wasn't. We weren't in a, in a wartime. Um, this was before the first Gulf War. Our mission as an Air Force nurse was a a secondary tertiary clinic. So if we were at war, our mission was not to be on the front line. That's what our, our Army nurses do. And that's where your MASH nurses are. Um, I chose to be Air Force. Um, we would be the secondary um, flight where they would bring our soldiers, wounded soldiers, before they came back to the United States. That was the mission of the Scott Air Force Base. So each where place, is Scott Air Force That's in Base? Illinois, right outside uh, of St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. So you weren't seeing war casualties? No, we were not. But our mission was still there to be ready in the event that we did go to war. So we had all that training because you never know. That's the job. You have to be ready to be mobilized. So then when you left active duty and became a veteran yourself, Mm -hmm. did you use the VA for your own health care? Actually, it's very interesting because I got out in 1989, and um, nobody even had mentioned the VA to me, okay? I did not really interact with the VA because I was on active duty, so I worked for the Department of Defense, and the VA was something out there, but nobody really knew much about, especially me as as a veteran being discharged. I mean, I'm sorry, as a soldier being discharged from the military. So, no, I did not know much about the VA. I never got any information about the VA, and it was kind of like a... Um, a secret. And is that because you hadn't sustained a war injury yourself or because you were female? or like Why Why do you think you weren't told? Um, I think, once again, it was during a peacetime. I never received any injuries while I was on active duty. I never had any, any reason to go to the VA per se. 
So did you? No, I did not. Okay. <laughs> so then um, in 1994, you mm-hmm. are hired by the VA. Mm-hmm. And so you're entering it in some ways really naively, like you're, you haven't been on the other side. To absolutely, know what it's like. absolutely. I see. In 22 years since 1994, I mean, the face of the VA has changed because there's so many more women veterans now than then. Is that Actually, that's my assumption. Is that true? That is true. Um, when I first came to the VA in 1994, um, the VA didn't have a really great reputation. What was that reputation? I'm going to actually say that was my perception. I had never stepped foot in the VA. I had been told. You know, I was working in St. Louis at some of the bigger hospitals in St. Louis, and everybody's like, oh, you don't ever want to go work at the VA. And I really can't say I know I know why. It's just because I listened to people that were telling me that the care was substandard there. The um, Unless you worked in the critical care, which was where I worked, there was not good medical care being given there. I see. So but that was I the reputation, but that we had no idea. That was the reputation, and I have no idea because I didn't go and experience it myself. Got it. Yeah. So, as you know... We're sort of at the turning point, the halfway point in the series we've been mm-hmm. doing on PTSD among women veterans. And the first half, we've been really focused on military sexual trauma. And so far, we've done two extended interviews with women who both served kind of 20-plus years ago. And it, so this is already out of date. But at that time, what they reported was after a sexual assault, they went to get medical care and... The doctor there didn't have the means to do a pelvic exam, didn't have a rape kit. It wasn't a place that they could get the appropriate medical care for their physical injuries. And I understand that was the military, not the VA. So I, I know That's we're talking correct. about apples That's and correct. oranges here. That's correct. But nonetheless, at the VA, at this point, the thing that I see in reading is that not all VAs are still equipped to provide gynecological care, mammograms, and so on for women. Is that true or is that old news as well? Um, I think they're getting better. Is it perfect? No. I still think there's some facilities out there struggling to get GYN on board. Um, But not that the VA is not providing that they may not be providing it in-house with a a staff person. They may be consuming that and fee servicing that in the community. So I think the women veterans may be getting it, but they may be getting it a different way. We do a lot of care in the community. Got it. So there's a way. I didn't know there was that kind of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Sure. So you can go get your gynecological appointment out of hospital would be billed to the VA. Right, right, with uh-huh. approval. There's with a approval, process. Yes. yes. Well, there's <laughs> approval now for everything, that's right? right? That's right. It's all prior authorization right. in healthcare these days. Mm-hmm. I see. So as far as you know, do you feel like if a woman needs some kind of very female-specific care, that there will always be eventually a way to get it, even if it isn't on site? I think so. I think we're there. I think there were there. Um, I can only speak of VA Maine because that's where I've worked for 22 years. Okay. And so tell me what you have seen about how the VA has been evolving. Well, um, so when I first started at Togus VA, uh, I was working in the critical care unit, which is a very isolated department to work in. Um, We really didn't see a lot of women. We did not see women coming in. Our medical surgical floors were group rooms with group bathrooms, so they couldn't admit a lot of women to the the mothership, our main campus inpatient units, because they had shared bathrooms, shared showers, and there was four beds to a room, so the privacy was not there. So when you say group showers, are you talking about like 
four different stalls with a curtain, or are you talking about a central pole with like four faucets on it? I'm them? talking four shower heads with curtains in between and the bathrooms with urinals and mixed. So right. they were mixed bathrooms, yes. Yeah, so when yeah. did that change? Well, um, Togus went through a major renovation in 2010. So quite yeah, recently. Quite recently, six years ago, yes. And now do you have rooms that are designated for women specifically? Actually, every room can accommodate a woman veteran. Um, they all are private or semi-private rooms with private bathrooms. So actually the care's gotten nicer for everybody. For everyone. And I always that's what I always say. It may have been a women's privacy issue and safety and security issue, but it's to benefit all veterans. All veterans deserve the privacy when they're sick. And when you say a safety and security issue... Were women in the hospital at risk? Well, in 2008, the Women's Strategic Health Group out of Washington did a survey on why women veterans were not using the VA. It's because they didn't feel secure there, because there were not locks on the doors. They got admitted to an inpatient psych unit. Um, At that time, the standard was the doors stayed open. They felt like somebody would come in on them, so they didn't feel real secure there. Bathrooms didn't have door locks. Um, So in about 2010, that's when they went through a renovation where all of our exam rooms now have a lock on the door. So when a female veteran's in there getting an exam, she doesn't have to worry about somebody walking in. At VA Maine, we're an old facility. We're the oldest facility in the country. Oh, really? Uh, Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, we turned 150 years old this fall. So taking an old building and renovating it to new standards is difficult. We want to make sure there's a lock on the door, make sure the foot of the bed's not facing the door in case somebody walked in, and making sure there's privacy curtains, not just for our women, but for all veterans. So it's, it has changed. I not thought of that, the foot of the bed, bed not yes. facing the door, so in terms of limiting exposure. Exactly, and now when you go to your doctor, you're going you're gonna to look at that. I am going to look at that, <laughs> the way that the, the bed is pointed. Right, and it's not just for that, but when we're sitting, because a lot of our employees are also veterans who get their health care at the VA. So we don't want them sitting at the table, on a, an exam table, and if the door should open, people walking by, to see in there and say, you know, uh, Susie Joe is here for a primary care appointment or is being seen by nephrology and get that that privacy is lost. So we all right. deserve that privacy. It's interesting when I hear you say that they did this survey that suggested women were not using the VA because of concerns about safety and security. It actually really affirms what we've been hearing from some of our guests on the show. One guest in particular, Kate Weber, who was a survivor of military sexual trauma, reported that going into the large VA was terrifying for her because she had been verbally assaulted um, by a guy in the waiting room or comments on her outfit or on her body or intrusive questions about what she was there for, what her trauma was. And do you hear stories like that? And, And what can be done about that? I haven't personally heard those stories, but those are the stories we hear nationally. So when I took on this role in 2010, our female veterans had to come into the lobby They had to get on an elevator, go to the fifth floor. So now you're walking through a whole big lobby, going up to the fifth floor, walking down an endoscopy unit to the women's clinic. So women veterans had to go through our whole facility just to get to the women's clinic. So um, there was a VHA handbook that came out requiring that um, women's clinics be on the first floor, have a 
easy access to our women veterans so that if they didn't feel comfortable coming into the big VA, at least they could come and get their health care in a clinic, at least their primary care, um, to give them some place where they felt not as a minority but as a majority. So I know VA Maine, we um, were able to secure some funding and we opened a brand new women's health clinic in 2014 that brought our clinic from the fifth floor of the main building to the first floor of one of our outbuildings. So that's a really kind of structural solution mm-hmm. and really creative and mm-hmm. it sounds like there's funding behind it and so that's that's great to hear. Yes, yeah. It is, I can't help but feel, though, it, it is somewhat disturbing to think that it's not safe to walk through a hospital to get to a clinic. I mean, that that the culture is still such that she would feel threatened, possibly yeah. by other veterans. Like, is, there, is I don't know what you can do about that. Right. I, and once again, I think some of the safety concerns um, that maybe the women were talking about, once again, these aren't my stories, these are national stories, and this is what we hear, is when they became impatient, especially on some of our mental health units. Um, because if you're the only female on a ward and you're on an inpatient psych unit, you really want to feel safe. So there was a lot of discussion. How do we make sure our veterans stay safe, our female veteran, but also not putting them at risk if they were admitted for suicide or if they were admitted for depression? So there was a balance there, and there, there's been a lot of work with our in our mental health units. So um, how do you do? Yeah, how, so what was the solution our, actually, to Actually, as long as our female veterans, or I believe any veteran up there, is not suicidal, they actually have locks on their doors. So at night when they go to sleep, they can lock their door. Locks on doors is a new thing for our mental yeah. health units. Yeah, I haven't worked on an inpatient unit in so long. I wonder if that's happening in the civilian yeah, I world don't know. Well. I don't know, yeah. Yeah. So in your ideal world, if you, you know, you've been at the VA for a long time, you've seen what's happening, what's changing, what's not changing, if you had the power to really make it exactly what you think would serve women veterans the most, what are some other changes that you would like to see happen? Let's see. That's a hard question because there's been so much progress made. Um, I just think we need to keep the momentum up. Just because we've come so far, we can't just let it down. Women veterans will always be a minority. Always. We will never be the majority in the VA. So we can't let our guards down. So I would just really like to see that every department in the VA, whether it's the healthcare side, the benefit side, the vet centers, make sure when they do anything, they at least the women veterans are included in part of that um, without having somebody to advocate every step of the way. And I'm starting to see that change. Hmm. You know, I'm starting to see less calls from service chiefs. We have a female veteran here. Okay. Well, so lucky you. <laughs> when you would get a call like that, what what kind of thing would be the problem that they would call um, you As a matter of fact, it's so funny because our radiology department called and said they had a female veteran over there complaining that she didn't like the DEXA machine, the DEXA scan machine. That's where you screen for osteoporosis. Okay, male and female veterans get uh, screened. I said, okay. What is it about the machine that she doesn't like? Well, we're really not sure, but she's a female, so we thought we'd call you. I was like, you know, what would you do if the male veteran complained about the machine? Find out the specifics and fix it, if it was a fixable issue. So those are the things that I'm really, really proud of some of our departments now. They're just owning it instead of calling me. You're the Women Veterans Program Manager. You take care of her. Right, because what that story yeah. suggests to me is that she's enough of an anomaly that yeah. we're, we're scared of her. Like, we don't know. Exactly. We're tiptoeing. Exactly. As, and instead of asking, you know, like normal common sense, like, well, what is it you don't like? Yeah. Yes. 
I want to ask you now about one of the really creative things that I learned has been going on as in a partnership through mm-hmm. the VA and the Maine Humanities Council. Mm-hmm. I understand that you were the co-leader of a book group for women's veterans. And that's right. We just finished a couple weeks ago. Tell me a little bit about how you came to get involved with it. So we had our first uh, veteran group last fall at Togus. We had about 11 female veterans. And I, I told her the, the only way I would be interested in doing this is if it was an inclusive group instead of an exclusive group. I didn't want there to be criteria on which female veterans could attend the group. So it wasn't combat vet. It wasn't PTSD group. All you had to do was be a female who had served in the military. Because women veterans don't always fit into a group. If we're not disabled, we are not part of the disabled group. If we weren't deployed, we're not part of the veterans of foreign war. So we don't always have some place to go to share those stories. And so that was really kind of a great thing because it brought a lot of eras together. We had some Vietnam veterans that joined, and we had some brand new veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. So it brought these groups together. Even though they served at different times, they still had one thing in common. They were females, and they had served in the military, and they had no place else to share their stories. And is that the purpose, for them to share their stories? That was my purpose. (laughs) Um, You know, I uh, actually had gone to Camp Kiev a couple of years ago to the Women Veterans week-long camp, and I saw a Korean War veteran who had come to this camp, who was knitting, and I saw an um, Iraq-Afghanistan female veteran who was also knitting. That was what they did for pleasure. And they came together, and they just shared stories. Um, I just sat back and watched the interaction, and we have so much to learn from each other. So tell me how it went, and maybe you can give me an example of of a couple of the readings. One of our main um, stories was Home Before Morning. That was the novel we read. Um, that's by uh, Linda Van Devanter, and she was a Vietnam uh, nurse in the Army. And it was basically her, her memoir on how she overcame her PTSD. This was her therapy, writing this memoir about her year, uh, her life before going into the military, then as a commissioned officer and being deployed or being sent to uh, Vietnam and the horrific things that she saw in her years uh, deployment. There. And then how she was treated when she came home. She was treated very poorly, very poorly, and maybe sometimes poorly by the Vietnam veterans themselves. So it was really kind of a, a great book for us all to discuss about being a minority but being treated in a, you know, not so supportive when you came back from that war. Can you give me an example or a feel for the kinds of discussions you had in the group or how that story particularly impacted um, well, two of our uh, members had served during that time frame, even though they had not gone to Vietnam. They had served during that era where um, being a soldier was not something that people looked highly upon or th- they never got thanked for their service. And actually, one of them says, you know, I can almost feel what she felt because she said it was no, you know, wishing you well send-offs. There was no yellow ribbons when you came home. You were... You immediately arrived back in the United States, took off your uniform, and and tried to blend back in. The younger generation had not experienced that. So it's a a different culture. Was the explicit invitation in these reading groups the chance to reflect on your own story as well as the book that you're actually reading? I mean, was was that clear that the intention to share your story was part of it? 
I th- I think we once again, you know, we with this group, we initially started the the first meeting was you can share what you want and you don't have to share anything, um, because we actually that was the main novel for the for the uh, seven weeks of the group, and we discussed um, that that novel, but there was a lot of short readings that went along with it also. Um, so some of them were more personal and it hit home versus maybe this one, as far as I was concerned, didn't hit home with me. Some of the other stories were a little bit, um, hit more towards home because they were on strong women. Um, one of the essays that we read was the female pilots we betrayed, which was part of the New York times Sunday review. And this is about history. This is history, 1942 to 1944, where um, women, as we had endured Pearl Harbor, how our male aviation pilots went to war, which left um, stateside a lack of skilled pilots to take the planes and fly them to where they were needed. So the Women's Air Force Service Pilots um, program was initiated in 42 to get these women who were qualified pilots to fly these planes from point A to point B or wherever they needed to go. So there was over a thousand women that served during 1942 and 1944. And in 1944, they were disbanded. And they were not given veteran status until 1980. And had to fight to get some of that. You know, once again, they were advocating for themselves. But the thing is, nobody called these women or told these women that they were eligible for health care, VA health care, or that they are a veteran. So these are the women you would never want to say, so are you a veteran? They're going to say absolutely not, because they were told they weren't. Um, so that's why we, we try to encourage people to say, have you ever served in the military? Because these women would love to tell you their story. Now, mind you, these are elderly women now. Right. So um, so they don't know that they may be eligible for health care. And this is the time where health care is expensive. So I do an awful lot of outreach to these women because there are uh, quite a few of them still alive. World War II and the Korean War. Right. So here you are with a group of women veterans now in a book group mm-hmm. in Brunswick, Maine, mm-hmm. reading this story mm-hmm. about, in some ways, their forebears. Mm-hmm. And what was it like for the for the women veterans of today to read about how their predecessors were treated? Did it? What did it stir up in the members of the group? Uh, well, it was anger to think that, you know, an important part of our history and uh, women who actually have served, stepped up and served when they were called upon, and then to be treated so disrespectfully when they left service. But on the other hand, some of them said, well, it were always an afterthought. And so these are some women that are still serving today, you know, that said, you know, why are we having to play catch up? We should have been included with everything all along the way, which I don't disagree with them. Um, but then we were able to uh, also watch um, The Life and Times of uh, Rosie the Riveter, mm-hmm. which is a very wide eye-opening experience also. It's the way women have been treated. When you need them, they were patriotic. And when the men returned from war, they become unpatriotic if they kept their jobs. They oh, were they were considered? To... I didn't know that. Yes. Unpatriotic to want to keep your job? Right. Why would you want to take a man's position? And these are women who stepped up to build ships planes, ammunition plants. When the men were called up to go to war, women stepped in to keep our industry going. And, you know, you can see the propaganda. Oh, be a patriot. If you can sew, you can design a plane. If you can, if you can, you know, cook and measure, you can, you can make a bullet. So they were taking household chores and relating it to the industry work. And then when the war was winding down, it was like, 
Now you can go back to your home care. Now you can go back to your household chores. And why would you want to keep your job? The men are returning. Don't be unpatriotic. So you could see the propaganda in this uh, this movie, which was wonderful. I mean, to accuse her of being unpatriotic for wanting to keep her job, that yes. is profound. And it was really a great interview because some of these women said, we really needed the money. We needed to support our family. Of course they did. And these were great paying jobs. So in the discussion in the book group, how did the conversation go after watching this? It was interesting because everybody was, once again, as women, you can see that, and they, they got angry. Not angry, angry, but it's like, you know, how it was almost, really? That really happened, you know, because we see women so much now um, working at Bath Iron Works, working in the military. How could that have been less than, what, 50 years ago? 50, 60 years ago? It was really recent. Yeah, I mean, that's just like yesterday, you know, so... I think women's role in our industry and our military has come a long way. The group members themselves, I understand that you wanted it to be inclusive. You didn't want there to be any entry criteria. But did a number of the women who signed up have PTSD themselves as it happened? Um, In our first group uh, um, last fall, we did have a few females that shared that. But they didn't go into real detail. And did you get a sense that being in the reading group was helpful to them? I think so. As a matter of fact, you know, we had it at Togus, so a lot of our, our, it was, um, um, we had some employees who are veterans, like me, that came to the group, and and some of them were patients that came. Um, So I think, you know, just hearing everybody's story to realize that we're, you know, no matter what our background is, we're still all female, and we're veterans, and we were served in the same kind of um, setting, because we had different readings last fall than we did this this time around. Um, so we tried not to focus on too much of the uh, military sexual trauma, but some of it was um, women being in predominantly male roles, um, which is always going to be a conflict. Whether you're a civilian or you're in the military, there's always those issues and, and um, problems that arise from in that. So I think, I think it was. We had a couple of repeats, so I would hope that it was not therapeutic, but enjoying to share those stories because there's a lot of good stories, too, out there. And what do you think it is about a reading group that helps people to tell their own story? Um, well, I can only speak for me, but I'm social. You know, we have women women who have like to socialize, and there's not a lot of um, structured forum for them to go to. Um, we don't fit into the VFW hall, or we don't fit into the American Legions, or we don't fit into, um, maybe we don't go to the veterans gun shoot down at, at wherever. These are a lot of veteran things going on, but sometimes we don't we don't fit into those those groups. So just having a social group where you have a structured reading list and you can share your your stories as as you feel like you want to was a I think a great thing. You know, it was a you know, we have uh, women are, are most likely to be caretakers. So it was busy nights, you know, it was nice to get out of the house just to do something for themselves. Um, so it was, a, it was, I thought it was a really great group mm. and I'm interested in doing it again. Rhonda Harris, thank you so much for being my guest and for the, all the work that you're doing at so many different levels to make women veterans feel, um, safe getting their health care at the, at the VA. Well, I want to thank you for doing this series. I mean, anytime we can bring attention to the service our women have done in the military and um, bringing the attention to our women veterans is always a good thing. Thank you for having me. So if somebody wants to find out how they could access the services that you are aware of, how can they find you? Um, Well, I always give out my number. Um, It is the main number at the hospital. It's 207 623 
8411 and my direct line is 4017. That's my extension. Okay, so that's not trying to get complicated. I know. So 207 623-8411. Can they just ask the operator to be put through to you? Absolutely. You can ask the operator for the Woman Veterans Coordinator, okay. Program Manager, or you can ask for my me by name, LaRonda Harris. Thank you again. And we always like to end with resources, and it seems fitting, given our conversation, to end with a couple of book recommendations. So far, you've said Home Before Morning, and the author of that one was Linda Vandeventer? Yes. Her name is D-E-V-A-N-T-E-R. Okay. And is there any other book or short story from your syllabus that you just thought was wonderful that you'd like to recommend? I thoroughly enjoyed The Life and Times of Rosie the Riveter. That was just wonderful watching that. Is that a movie? That is. That is a movie. It's about an hour and a half long. I think you can actually streamline it through Netflix. Okay, um, perfect. But uh, that really just really shows our history and... and the way women are looked upon. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like the show, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And if you'd like to hear any of the past shows from this series on PTSD among women veterans, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. <laughs>